I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but the Lord loves you. Now, you may say, oh, preacher, you're being cute. We're sitting in church on Sunday morning. But I I want you to understand what that means, that the Lord loves you. I don't really, to be honest, I got, I got, I don't know what I'm going to preach today. I got a few things on my heart. And we may just see what the Lord does. I don't know if you know this, but you were born in a lost condition. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that and what that means. That means that you weren't born okay with God. We're all born lost in our sins, meaning that we don't have a relationship with God, meaning that we are spiritually dead, meaning that something needs to change in our life. We stand at ought with God. There's a problem between us and God. And somebody's got to fix that problem. Now you say, well, I'll fix it, but you can't fix it. You don't have the means to fix that problem between you and the Lord. That problem is sin. It's that your very nature is to do the things that are offensive to God. It's true for me too, by the way. I ain't just talking about you. I'm talking about me as well. You're born in a lost condition. And you may be walking around living and interacting with the world, but spiritually you're dead. You have no relationship with God. You have no ability to have... Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just let the Bible say what I'm trying to say. And uh, if you're if you came here and you're saved and you wanted a nice, sweet little message that you could tuck in your Bible and go home, I'm sorry. Come back tonight. I'll do my best. But I've just got this on my heart, and I need to say it. And we might, if you stick around, we might even preach that message you want me to preach here in a moment. I don't know. But listen to how Paul describes the situation of every lost individual. Every single person born into this world is born into an identical situation. Now, you may say, well, preacher, your life probably looked different than my life. And that's true. My life may have looked different than your life. My home may have been different than your home. But I was born just as lost as you were. You were born just as lost as the most lost man that ever lived was born. And the Bible describes that state to us. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter number 2. Paul says, and you, he's talking to saved people at this point, but he's describing their past. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses, and sins. Now, you know what it is to trespass. It means to cross a boundary that you ain't allowed to cross. You had trespassed God's boundaries. You'd broken His law. You'd sinned against Him. And I have too. We all have. It says this is what that looked like. Wherein in time past... You remember, he's talking to saved people. He's saying, before you got saved, this is what your life looked like. In time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. It's another title for the devil. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. Now when he uses the word conversation, he means our manner of living. What did that look like? Well, in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Were by nature the children of wrath. Whose wrath? Well, God's wrath. The Bible says in John chapter 3, that same chapter that you love to quote about God's love the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I say amen to John 3.16. Also says that the wrath of God abideth on those that do not know the Lord. And so that means you're born wrong with God. You're not born right the first time. You're not born in a right condition with the Lord. 
but the wrath of God is abiding on you. Now, what can change that? Verse 4, but God. You say, well, God's mad at me. He must be a, he must be a mean God. No. The Bible says God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. I don't know about you, but I ain't got no use for anybody that's dead. They don't do me any good. They don't help me. They don't benefit me. But the Bible says when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. That means to make us alive or to give us spiritual life. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, just like Christ was resurrected, we spiritually are resurrected, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not working it out, he's working in us. For we are his workmanship. He created us. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, bless your word this morning, Lord. A lot in my life that you may not be able to bless and to brag about, but God, your word is perfect. Lord, I believe I'm following you in obedience today, so I pray that we'd see fruit from our labor such that we give you glory. If there's a lost person here, and I don't know, I don't know anybody's heart's condition, save my own. Lord, I know that I've been saved. But Lord, I pray you'd show them, show them in a way that I can't. I preach at them all day, but God, you've got to show them the truth that we're trying to communicate today. And I pray the Holy Spirit would do that and would show them this truth and they'd make the choice to cast themselves upon Christ, call upon him to be saved. Lord, I love you. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I read this passage of Scripture, there are three preeminent thoughts that begin to Occupy my mind. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's talking about who they were before they got saved. And who they are now that they have been saved. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians is about Christ gaining the authority over who you used to be through the cross of Calvary. You know what happened when you got born again? You got bought with a price. You're not your own. People will say, well, preacher, it's my own life. No, it's not your life. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, why would I get saved if I have to forfeit my life? Your life's already forfeit. You already don't do what you wish you could do. If you did, you'd be happy. If you did, you'd have peace. You'd have contentment. If you did, you wouldn't have the the anxieties, the insecurities, the discouragement, the disheartenedness, the darkness that you've got in your life. See, you're not running you. It's not a question of whether you're going to run you. You won't get to run you. It's a question of who gets to run you. And you, you're on the wrong side. You've picked the wrong master. But there's a better master that would be happy to take over the authority in your life. And so Paul's talking about how that when we get born again, we're not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. And our life should change in light of that. Now, that doesn't mean we never live uh, in a way that embarrasses the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't make choices that look like the choices that lost people make. But it does mean that God has called us to live a different life after we've been born again. A lot of what's broken in Christianity today is simply people that are saved living like they're lost. Not living like God saved them. 
You can make the choice to live like a lost person. You'll pay the, the heartache and the, and the pain for it. But it'd be far better if you just did what God would have you to do. You'd be happier. You'd be more pleased. Man, your life would be more peaceful. And so Paul is dealing with how that when God saved us, He changed us. He transformed our life. And he has described this in chapter number 1, but now when he comes to chapter 2, he begins to talk about the mechanics of that change. Oftentimes when I'm witnessing someone, I'll say, do you know the Lord as your Savior? And uh, a lot of times we'll say, are you going to heaven when you die? Everybody knows the right answer to that. Yes. Uh, you know, only the most uh, hateful and avowed atheists would, would stub up and puff their chest and say, no, I'm not going to heaven. I mean, everybody knows the right answer to that. And often I'll ask them this question, how did that happen to you? Tell me what happened. Why do you believe that is true? Do you have any reason to believe you're going to heaven? Uh, most people walking around, at least down here in the southeast, believe they're going to heaven and have no reason to believe that. There's never been anyone with any authority that told them they had any reason to believe they would be going to heaven. They've just assumed that that is true. They're living according to their conscience. They think they're a pretty good person and that they do pretty good things, so they must be going to heaven. I would say this, it is God's heaven. We better find out what He expects for us to get there. And so you shouldn't just assume you're going to heaven. And in fact, the Bible tells us that we should not make that assumption because no man is born in his natural state automatically right with God and on their way to heaven. You're born lost, needing to be saved, and needing for that eternal destiny to change. And so Paul's talking about how that change happened. And we'll say, well, how'd that happen to you? Uh, if you were to ask me that question, I would tell you on December 1st, 1997, I was alone in my bedroom. I was a 10-year-old boy, and God showed me that I was lost. Now, I, well, here's what I mean when I say that. I had grown up in a Bible-believing home. I'd grown up in Christian school. I'd grown up in a good Bible-believing church. And I knew the mechanics of the gospel. I knew Jesus died in my place and was buried and rose again. I could have probably led someone else to the Lord. But I did not believe in my heart of hearts that that was true about me. It was always true about other people, but somehow it wasn't true about me. And the Spirit of God dealt with my heart and convinced me. That's what it means, by the way, to be convicted. It means to be convinced of your sin. And He convinced me that I was lost. And here's why He could do that, because I had no reason to believe I was saved. I had never called upon the Lord to forgive me and save me. I had never put my faith in Him. You see, He's not going to convince a saved person that they're unsaved. You know how you know that? Because what would be the criteria wherewith He would convince them? He could convince me because I had never trusted the Lord. I'd never called upon Him to save me. So, of course, He could convince me of that. Now, I'm not saying saved people don't struggle with doubts about their salvation. I struggled as a young man with that very thing. But what I'm saying is if we look at that logically, He can only really convince us that we're not saved if uh, if we have no criteria wherewith to believe that we are saved. You say, preacher, why do people doubt their salvation? Well, that's because it's not it's not the spirit of truth. It's the father of lies that's making them do that. But if you have a foundation to believe that to be true. So I had no foundation. He he showed me that I was lost. And I agreed with God about that. When God said, you're lost, Toby, I could have argued and said, no, I'm not. I could have said, but I'm a pretty good person. I could have said, but I've done a lot of good things. Or I grew up in a good home. Or I have parents that know the Lord. But thank God that in His mercy, I did not do that. I said, you're right, God. I'm lost. I'm lost. And uh, then I did what I had always been taught was the appropriate thing to do. If you want to get saved, what do you do? Well, you ask the Lord to forgive you and to save you of your sins. 
And you trust Him, you believe Him that He'll do as He said that He would do. And so I did that very thing, and He saved me on that day in December uh, 25 years ago. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? We say, well, how'd that happen to you? And that is a true answer to how it happened to me. But Paul's dealing with, why can it happen to me? What is it that God did that made all of that possible? I would say this morning, I want to preach to you on this thought. Why could it happen to me? Why could it happen to me? If you're here lost today, you can be saved. You don't have to leave lost. Now, no one can make you get saved. I can't make you do it. And the people around you can't. Your parents can't. And your, your spouse can't. And your co-workers. And on and on we could go. But likewise, no one can stop you from getting saved. Now, here's what this means. When no one can make me do something, but no one can stop me from doing it either, it is now my responsibility. And I'm going to give an answer one day as to how I have responded to that. And so it is your responsibility today, in light of the gospel, to make a choice as to what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about why that you and I can be Saved. Notice three things that he deals with. Number one, he talks about the situation of the lost person. Now, this seems really simple, but sometimes the most simple things have to be said. We miss them somehow. You might say, well, preacher, I'm not sure that I need to be saved. Now, I'm not talking about people that have believed on the Lord and have trusted Christ and they've been saved. But I'm talking about somebody sitting here today that has no reason to think that you're saved that would say, preacher, I'm not sure I need to be saved. And I would tell you, yes, you do. You say, preacher, what proof do you have of that? Well, because Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says He's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. When God wanted to change this world, He sent a Savior. That must mean we need to be saved. He didn't send a reformer to reform us. He didn't send a life coach to counsel us. He sent a Savior to save us because we need to be saved from our sins. And so the situation of every single person born into this world is that they are born lost and needing to be saved. Now, what does that mean for their lives? Well, Paul says this in verse 1, and he describes three things about the lost person and their condition. He says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that's interesting language, quickened. It means to be made alive. Very often when we describe, I'm, I'm a nail biter, all right? I, I, it's with, I, to my eternal shame and embarrassment, it's something that I've always done. I, I ain't nervous, amen? It's just, well, maybe I am, I don't know. You're kind of making me a little nervous this morning. <laughs> but if you ever clip your fingernails, or and I hope you do, amen, or, or, or maybe you just gnaw on it like some kind of squirrel in a tree or whatever it is, Sometimes if you go too far, you'll get into what's called the quick. You'll know when you get into the quick, because your finger will let you know that you got into the quick. And you'll feel it. It'll be painful. It'll hurt. Now, we understand that the entire fingernail is alive to a certain degree. I mean, it's growing. But we're getting into that part where we can feel the pain. We're getting into that part where it is living and where if we were to cut it, it would bleed. The word quick means to be alive. Alive in a perceptible way. Not not alive like a house plan is. Alive like a person is. To be perceptible. To be uh, to be sensing things. 
And the Bible says that one of the things that God has to do for a lost person is He has to quicken them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they are physically dead? Well, no, that's not true. You, you, if you're here lost today, you're very much alive and breathing. But what it means is that spiritually, you are dead. Meaning, a dead person doesn't respond to things. You can insult them, you can compliment them. Uh, a dead person, despite what all of the Hollywood movies and shows would like for you to believe, if you leave them laying out on a table, you could come back six months later. Uh, they might look different, but they'd still be laying there on that table. They're not going to get up and walk under their own power. They're not going to stand up and speak under their own power. They're not going to stand up and live and interact with the world. They have no ability to do any of those things. So here Here's what that means for you. As a spiritually dead person, you can't walk with God. You can try to do things that you see Christians doing, but you're not walking with God. You can't speak with God. You can't communicate with God. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, how could I get saved if I need to talk to him, but I can't talk to him? Well, that's what the Word of God does. It gives you the ability to put faith and respond towards him. But in your lost condition, you could talk towards the sky, but you don't have a relationship with God. And you can't live for God. You can't make choices that please God. You can't have a relationship with Him. You're, you're, you're dead. What are you dead in? What's the proof that you are dead? Well, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. Trespass is to cross the boundary, right? Sin is to violate God's commandment and God's law. You know how you know a lost sinner is dead in their sins because they can sin and it doesn't bother them. It doesn't bother them. They cross that boundary like it's not even there. They sin and never give thought to how God feels about that. You say, preacher, a saved person can sin. Yeah, but they feel it when they do. The lost person doesn't feel it. So here's what we could say about your situation. Number one, you're dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins. You can be a moral person. You can be a quote-unquote religious person. But none of that gives you a relationship with God. Why? Because the chief problem is not that you're a bad person or that you don't go to church enough. The problem is you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, notice verse 2. The Bible says this, Wherein in time past you walked. Wait a minute. I thought dead men didn't walk. According to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What's the lost person's situation? Well, they're dead in their sins. But now hold on a minute. Verse 2 tells me they are alive in their sins. You say, wait a minute, preacher, you're, you're speaking nonsense. And I do speak a lot of nonsense. But right now I'm telling you truth. You say, preacher, how can you be both dead in your sins and alive in your sins? Well, we could maybe say it this way. You're dead unto God but you're alive unto your sin. So what's the evidence of that? Because you are walking according to the course of this world. It's funny how this world, at least on a superficial level, and this is quickly going away as the Marxists are taking control of society, but has always lauded the notion of autonomy and independence and independent thinking. When the truth of the matter is, the only way you're going to break the shackles that this world has on you is to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, listen, it doesn't matter the clothes you put on. It doesn't matter the house you live in or the car you drive. You are going to fundamentally do what everyone else in the world does. You're going to live according to your own pleasure, according to your own interest, and you're going to live a hollow, dead, meaningless life until one day you die and meet God unprepared. And that's what the entire world is doing. We see in this passage 
You say, preacher, what's the situation of a lost person? Well, they have no relationship with God, but they have a real close relationship with their sins. They're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You say, how can you tell that? And it's funny because people will say, well, I'm okay without God. The atheist would say, I can be good without God. Okay, show me. Show me. Show me Stalin's policies without God. Tell me he was good. Tell me that Mao was good. Tell me that Paul Pot was good. You say, preacher, you're picking on the communists every chance I get. But even beyond that, here's why I say that, because communism is an atheistic militant state system. But really, it, it all just communicates what you'll see in society all around. Find me a good atheist. Find me one that lives selflessly, not with self-interest. Find me one that is laboring that he might give to him that hath need. Find me one. Find me one. The atheist says, I can be good without God. Then why is the world so bad? See, here's the truth of the matter. They, just like you, just like every lost person, are alive unto your sins. That's what you respond to is unto sin. You were dead in your sins. You were alive in your sins. But then look at verse 3. Among whom, among whom? The children of disobedience. So we were among them. Also, we all had our conversation. Now, when we talk about a conversation as the communication of words, that's taking what's in your heart and in your mind and, and expressing it outwardly. Your life does that with what's in your heart. That's why the Bible uses that word that way. It's talking about the way that you live, your lifestyle, among whom we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. And what did we do? What was the main, most important thing to us? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. You were dead in your sins. You were alive in your sins. But number three, you were bound in your sins. Bound in your sins. Everybody likes to fancy themselves doing, uh, being the master of their own destiny. It's why, it's why we like all the old cowboy movies, you know, the idea of the lawless West and people doing their own thing and living their own way. But that's all a fallacy. See, the truth is the lost person does exactly what he's told to do. He's just not aware of who's telling him to do it. He thinks he's doing it because he wants to do it. Let's stop and examine that. Would a man drink himself to the point of of destroying his body if that's what he really wanted to do? Would a person take dirty needles and stick them in their arm and, and destroy their mind? Is that in their interest? Does that make them happier? Does that give them a better life? Would a person go and engage in illicit relationships that destroy the mind and warp the soul and corrupt the body? Would they do that? Have you ever seen, my pastor used to always say, the devil does not have any happy old people. And so the lost person says, well, I do what I want. But you don't. Uh, Let me say it this way. You do do what you want. It's just you don't control what you want. And what you want is not in your best interest. So the fact of the matter is the lost person, at the end of the day, they say, well, I'm doing what I want. I'm living how I want. But they're really, even if they in a sense are, they're not living according to that which is wise or true or clean or good. And they're living a life that's destructive. Here's the reality. They're bound. They're in bondage. They're in chains in their sin. Listen, the, the, the largest slaveholder ever to walk this earth is the devil himself. 
He puts every lost man, woman, and child in shackles of sin, creates in them a bondage that only the cross of Calvary can break. And you can live your whole life a mindless limbing of the devil if you choose. You can live your whole life with him cracking the whip on your back and running your life and running you into hell and destruction if you choose to do so. But I'm thankful you don't have to choose to do so. I see the situation of the lost person, but then I see the compassion of God in verse 4. So here's the lost person. He's dead in his sins. He's alive unto his sins. All he can do is live in sin. He's in bondage unto his sin. What can change that? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 4, but God. I like that phrase, but God. It's going this direction. Nothing can stop it, but then this happens, right? This, I, I mean, everything's going good. I, you know, it, it's how many times we talked about UT football, we'd say everything was going good. But then halftime came and a different team came out of the locker room. It's going a direction and then it changes. What changes it? Only God can change the trajectory of your life. Church can't do it. I'm a big believer in church. I love it. I go to church all the time. I'm at church probably more than most anybody. I love church. But church can't change your life. Self-reform, we're uh, here in, in, the, in the days of, of resolutions. Everybody's making resolutions. Going to fix this, going to fix that, going to fix this. But can I tell you that turning over a new leaf or trying to somehow remedy or cleanse your life through your own ability and strength, that won't work. How do you know that, preacher? Because you've tried it before. It didn't work then, did it? It won't work the next hundred times either. The only thing that can change your life is the Lord, is God. He can change it. I know that He can because He changed mine. These people here know that He can because He changed theirs. He transformed. There's people in here that were on drugs. There's people in here that lived lives of promiscuity. There's people here that lived as drunkards. There's people here that lived as violent. And God changed their life. God can do it. You can't. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together by, with Christ. By grace ye are saved. We see the compassion of God. Notice, number one, the love that He showed. He's rich in mercy, and He loves you with a great love. Far beyond what you could ever understand. Typically, love to us is reciprocal. What we mean by that is we love people that love us. I mean, that's generally the rule in life. I love people that love me. But that's not the way God loved you. God loved you when you didn't love Him. Can I tell you this? Hey, and I ought to preach, preach to a few saved people this morning. We might have a few here. Can I say to you this morning? <laughs> can I say to you, He loves you even when you don't love Him. If you've not been loving Him lately by walking with Him and obeying Him and, 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 and yielding your life to Him, He still loves you. He still loves you. You can get right with Him because He loves you. But listen, He didn't start loving you when you got saved. He loved you before you got saved. We, in fact, love Him. You say, well, preacher, He loves me because I love Him. No, you got that turned around. We love Him, the Bible says, because He first loved us. When you didn't know who God was, He knew who you were. He loved you. He knew the numbers of hairs on your head. He knew every heartache, every pain. Hey, he put your tears in a bottle. He knew who you were. He loves you. You say, preacher, nobody in this world loves me. That's not true. God loves you. 
This is what I meant at the beginning of the message. I don't know if you understand what I mean when I say the Lord loves you. I think we think, well, He thinks fond thoughts towards me. No, I mean, He loves you more than He loves Himself. He went and died for you. Because you remember that sin debt you owed. You couldn't pay it. He went and died for you because He loves you. Now, listen, I see the love that He showed, but then I see the life that He shared. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, what can be done about that? I mean, listen, I, this is something we all recognize that, you know, once a person dies, there's nothing you can do for them. There's nothing you can do for them. The Roman Catholics tell people to pray for their dead, and, and they tell them that their prayers have a better chance of going through if they'll give money to the Catholic Church when they do that. Isn't that amazing? Boy, what a boon for them that it just worked out that way, you know? Isn't that funny? Uh, listen, I, you know, the truth is when someone dies, there's nothing you can do for them at that point. There's nothing you or I can do for a dead person once they're dead. But let me tell you what God could do for you in being spiritually dead. He could give you His life. We sing the song, His life for mine. And that's what He did. He said, you're spiritually dead. You can't get to me. But I will robe myself in flesh and I will come to you where you're at and I will live a life amongst men, and then I will go, and you deserve to die as a lawbreaker, as a breaker of God's law. They nailed Jesus to the cross as a breaker of God's law. You should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross, because we're the ones that were dead in trespasses and sins. We had broken God's law. But instead, he said, though I don't deserve to go to the cross, I will go. And I will bear, and the Bible even says He became our sin. God hath made Him to be sin for us. He took our place. And then he here's what He did. He said, I'll take your death and I'll give you my life. He quickened us. He made us alive. Now I can talk to God. Now I can walk with God. Now I can live for God. Now all of a sudden, I who was dead am made alive. I see the life that he shared. And then I see this. I'm going to say it this way. I see the lift that he secured. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, verse 6 says this. Not only did he give us life, but he hath raised us up together. In other words, just as Christ rose from the dead, we likewise spiritually rise from the dead. Christ died in our place so that we could live. But now Christ is not dead now. He's alive and that life that he has, we have. We, we shared in the cross with him, and we share in the empty tomb with him. So he's raised us up together, and where did he put us? Where are we at right now? Now, you would say, preacher, I'm at 3020 Wall Ridge Road. I'm sitting right here in this church pew. But now, wait a minute. If you could be physically alive but spiritually dead, then you can also be physically here but spiritually somewhere else. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't mean that you're having an out-of-body experience. It might just be I'm preaching too long. But what I do mean is this, that God treats you as though you're sitting in heaven, perfect already with Him. He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Two things he did for you when you got saved. Number one, you were given a new position. Before, you were as far away from God as a person could be. 
Now you're as close to God as a person can be. Now, I don't mean we always live in perfect harmony and obedience with God. But I mean just as spiritually, though you'd say, Preacher, I I try to pray. Yeah, I know that. But if you're spiritually dead, you can't get to God. You are separated from Him. Your sins have separated you from Him. When you were given His life and raised up together with Him, now, just as far as your deadness separated Him, His life brought you close to Him. You're given a new position. You say, Preacher, am I important? Sure you are. The God of all creation died for you. Died for you. So, preacher, I may never get anywhere in life. Well, if you're saved, you got somewhere. Because you're seated together with Christ. What an amazing thing. You know, some people have an idea about salvation like they're trying to work their way to get there. And this passage just absolutely obliterates that idea. But part of, of what Paul says to, to obliterate that idea is he says, get there. You are there. If you're saved, you're already... I don't know what, how high people are wanting to climb, but if they're saved, they're seated on God's throne with Him. What a privilege, man. You're given a new position. Number two, you're given a new purpose. Verse 7 says that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know, when you think about who God is and what man could know about God, There are certain things that man could only know about God through the fall that happened in the garden. You see, man could... Adam, before the Garden of Eden, before before he ate of the fruit, Adam knew that God was all-powerful. He already knew that. He knew that God was, we use the term omniscient, all-knowing. He knew that. He knew that God was majestic and glorious and virtuous. He knew that God was holy. He knew that God was righteous. He knew in a sense that God was benevolent, kind. But here's some things he didn't know. He didn't know God was merciful. Because he hadn't needed mercy. He didn't know God was gracious. Because he hadn't needed God's grace. And though he knew that God was kind, he didn't really know how loving God was. Because he had not yet been altogether unlovely. But after he sinned in the garden, he began to learn, God is so much more than I ever thought that he was. Now, listen, the demonstration's not over yet. Because all of creation and all of the angelic hosts and all of the ages of men have never reached the depth of who God is. So part of what God's doing is through the grace He's shown in saving lost sinners and through the love He's shown in dying for them and through the benevolence and the goodness that He's shown in blessing them and through the faithfulness He's shown in keeping them. He has made their life a testimony of who He is. So here's here's what happened. Before you got saved, your life told others about you. But after you got saved, now your life's not about telling others about you. Now your life is about telling others about Him. And the things you say, and the places you go, and the way that you live, is all devoted, or should be, to showing everyone how good God is. Man, you were given a new purpose in life. It's sad sometimes. Think about all these lost people walking around in this world, dead and empty, living, just trying to get a paycheck, 
it ain't even backed by gold anymore. It's zeros on somebody's ledger book. You know? And that's their whole life. Their whole life is, is how can I get from point A to point B? How can I make enough money, uh, you know, to buy the new iPhone that'll be out of date before I get it paid off to take out a loan to get the next new one? And that's their whole life. Their whole life is going from, from, from cheap garbage to cheap garbage, from gadget to gadget, just waiting for the final grains of sand to drop through the hourglass to die a hopeless, empty, meaningless death. And that's how the world is living. But you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. Hey, listen to me this morning, Christian. You don't have to live that way. Your life can count for more than that. God doesn't begrudge anybody working a job. God says if a man won't work, he ought not eat. And that if a man won't work and provide for his family, he's worse than infidel and denied the faith. God's not against you working. God understands. He blesses us and meets our needs because He knows that it takes means to live in this world. But what a tragedy it would be if God spent His life for you and you squandered on nothing but just toys and nonsense. I'm telling you, listen, God died for more than that. And you live for more than that. You should live for more than that. When a person gets saved, they get a new purpose in life. And then finally, and I'm done this morning, we've seen the situation of the lost person, right? Dead in their sins, alive under their sins, bound in their sins. We've seen the compassion of God the love that He showed, the life that He shared, the lift that He secured, a new position in Christ, a new purpose in God. But finally, I want you to notice the salvation of Christ. Okay, preacher, you've convinced me. How do I do it? What does it take? You know, I wonder how many times we fail lost people because we don't tell them how to find God. We tell them they ought to find God. We tell them that He's a God worth finding. But how rarely we tell them, this is how you get to God. How do we get to God? Well, I want you to notice three things here. Notice, number one, the salvation of Christ in our life, it's by grace. Verse 8 says this, For by grace are ye saved through Him. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, that word grace, especially if you've not been in church much, you might not be really familiar with it. You might have heard it, heard people say when they're going to pray over a meal, it's say grace and things like that. But here's what grace is. Grace is God giving you something you do not deserve. That's what grace is. And, and, you know, I understand for the theologians in the room, you want to nitpick me, I understand God's grace extends beyond just salvation and, and so many things, but... Uh, for, for somebody trying to find God this morning, let me just make it real simple for you. It's God giving you something you do not deserve. A lot of people think they get to God by doing things that will impress God or proving to God that they'll be a good, good Christian, a good soldier in His army. But that's not in the Bible. The Bible does not say that. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace, by God giving us something we do not deserve. You say, preacher, prove it. Well, the Bible says it is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not something you earn. It's not something you prove yourself worthy of. It's something that God gives you. Now, how do we get something as a gift from someone? Well, a person can desire to give it to us. But if they don't... uh, Ooh, I want to say this right. God won't force you to be saved. But He has salvation for you. 
And so here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to ask Him for it. You're going to have to ask Him for it. Now, there's some steps along the way that, that, that get us to that place. Like we have to acknowledge we need that. We have to admit that we need that. You know, how, I, 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 how many of you, you sometimes mm, we just came after Christmas. I better be careful. How many of y'all sometimes get gifts you don't need? Yeah. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm glad the gesture is what matters. Because I don't care a thing about this, you know, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, oftentimes one of the hard things at Christmas time is to get people to tell you what they need. And sometimes it's because they don't even want to think about what they need. Sometimes just because we have too much stuff. But a person won't receive the gift of salvation if they don't first believe they need the gift of salvation. Now, why would a person need to be saved? Because they're lost. What does it mean to be lost? It means to be a sinner unrepentant. It means to have not come to Christ and ask forgiveness. So you're going to have to acknowledge that you're lost. No man ever got saved. My preacher used to say it's not hard to get people saved. It's hard to get them lost. Meaning it's not hard to convince people to get saved. But it's hard to convince them that they're lost and need to be saved. And certainly it's true that before you ever get saved, you have to admit to God that you're lost. Are you listening to me? You have to confess to God that you're lost. That you need to be saved. Not only that, you have to know that God has the ability to give you this gift. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because he paid the price for it. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm to the place in life, if something might be stolen, it's given to me, I don't even, I don't even investigate. That's between them and the Lord. Amen. I ain't worried about it. I ain't looking for serial numbers. Somebody say amen to that. That's between you and God and the state of Tennessee. All right. But no, really, when you receive a gift, you have to believe, if you're going to receive it in integrity, you have to believe the person paid for it. You don't want to believe they stole it. Uh, not only that, you have to believe that they have the means to give it to you. I, you know, I, maybe you remember being a child. I remember uh, being a child, and sometimes your friends would promise you things. And then you go to your parents and say, so-and-so is going to give me this. And my parents would say, son, your friends are liars. They don't have that to give you. So if we're going to receive the gift of salvation from God... We have to believe and recognize that He's able to give it to us. How do we believe that? Because He he paid for it. He paid for it with His own life on the cross of Calvary. Not only that, it has to be something that we believe He has the ability to give us. I mean, it's all good and well for someone to say they would give you something, but if they don't have... That's why we have wills today. is so that if someone dies, we can still get their stuff, right? And just guarantee the government doesn't get it. That's why we have wills. If you have not written out your will, you need to do it, not for love of your kids, but for spot towards your government. Just make sure they don't get it if for no other reason. Instruct it to be burned if you need to, but just don't let them get a hold of it. Amen? They'll, they'll, mm. <laughs> and, and we have wills so that there's someone to give it to us. Well, here's the thing. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, then how could He give us salvation? Who are you going to pray to? Who are you going to ask? Who are you going to talk to? So you understand, this is why a man must believe in the gospel. That he's lost and needs to be saved. That Christ paid the price for him through his death on the cross of Calvary. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day in power and glory. Because he's alive to give us that salvation. You have to understand those things. Once you do, here's what you do. You ready? You ask for it. 
It's all there. It ain't complicated because, listen, I, I ain't the brightest bulb even at 35, but at 10 years old, I, I wasn't sharp. But I knew if I just asked God, this is why the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. With the heart, uh, with the mouth confessions made unto salvation, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, that all we have to do is just ask Him. If we'll ask Him, He'll keep His Word. He'll give it to us. It's by grace, not through good works or baptism or joining a church or coming and sitting in the pews of this church today. That's not what does it. You're here, if you're lost here today and you don't call on Christ, you'll leave lost. And God won't be impressed by the fact that you came in and tolerated our company for two hours. It doesn't save you. Hey, listen, this salvation, it's, it's by grace, not by good works, not by anything you do. It's not, I mean, I don't see how it could get clearer. By grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. No works are necessary for a person to be saved. Let me say number two, it's not only by grace, it's for His glory. It says, lest any man should boast. Lest any man should boast. You know why God won't let you work your way to heaven? Two reasons. One, you can't. Two, if you did, heaven wouldn't be heaven anymore. Heaven is all about Jesus Christ. It's what it's about. It's what makes heaven, heaven. And if everybody was sitting around in heaven going... Boy, did you see what I did down there? Boy, I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to hang around there. I love hearing about the good things I did. I'm I'm indifferent to hearing what you've done. But let me tell you the truth. Hey, listen, when you get saved, your whole life becomes about His glory. You're not living for you anymore. We talked about it earlier. The whole purpose of your life is that He might receive glory. And then look at this last thing, verse 10. This salvation of Christ, it's by grace, it's for His glory. But number three, it's unto good works. It says this, for we are His workmanship. What's a workmanship? Well, it's something you, you're working on. It's a project. It's a creation, right? I remember years ago, I decided I was going to get into whittling. I don't know why. I'm not 80 years old, but I just, people do strange things sometimes, and it struck me, I'm going to get into whittling, you know? I think the problem was I didn't buy a rocking chair at the same time. I think if I had, I would have stuck with it. I, I really do. But I, I went down to the woodworking store and I got the whittling pieces and the, you know, or the, the, the knives and everything and I went and got wood and, and all that stuff and I sat down and I decided I was going to whittle a chess set. And to this very day, down in my office, I have a box with some fairly, uh, unused and very sharp whittling knives and two of the most sickly looking chess pawns you've ever seen in your entire life. But they're mine. They're my creation. I Nobody else made them but me. I created them. Can I tell you, hey, listen, when you got saved, you became God's workmanship. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. New creature. Old things are passed away. Old, all things are become new. You get created new in Jesus Christ. Now, my goal was to carve those pieces so that I could have a big, beautiful chess set and everybody go, ooh, ah, you know, and everything. But typically when we make something, there's a purpose behind it. Why did He save you? What did He have in mind? What's the function of your life? Well, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Unto what? Unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. When something doesn't realize its purpose, it's a sad thing. 
A lot of Christians are sad because they're not in any remote way in their life realizing their purpose. God saved you so that you might be a testimony for Him through the life that you live. He saved you to transform and change your life so that men would look at you and say, that's what God can do with a person. That's what God can do with somebody that will come to Him. Let me say to you Christians here today, what's their opinion when they look at your life? Do they look at a couple little sad, unfinished pawns and think, I guess somebody didn't care too much? Or do they look at your life and say, wow, God did an amazing thing in them. You know, if God could do that in them, God could do that in me. I'll tell you this this morning. God saved us for more than just running out the clock. Most of us are living our lives just running out the clock. We get up with no sense of purpose while away our day and, and, and go to bed and wait for another one just to happen to us. Instead of living a life of direct, distinct, deliberate purpose. I want my life to count for Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, if you're here lost today, you don't have to leave lost. You don't have to walk through those doors and off into hell. Your life can be changed. Nobody can make you and nobody can stop you. And that means, in light of what you've heard today, you have a responsibility. Every person in this room, myself included, probably myself more than anyone, is going to answer for the things that we've heard here today. We're going to have to give an account to God for how we responded to it. If you're saved, you're going to give an account as to whether you're living a life worthy of Christ dying for it. And if you're here lost today, you're going to have to answer to God for what you've done with the things that have been said to you here today. I pray and hope and trust that we'll choose Christ and His will and life for us. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And you don't have to wait for the right question to be asked. You don't have to wait for the notes to begin to be played on the piano. You don't have to wait for any of that. You can come and you can bow at this altar. And you can immediately begin to deal with God right now in this moment. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name.